The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Well, it's a thrill to be able to share God's Word with you. And uh, let's just pray. Ask God to help us as we come before His Word together. Father, as always, we want to thank you that you speak. You're still speaking. Uh, you created the world with the, the power of your Word. Jesus Christ is the, the very person of your word, and uh, your Holy Spirit ministers your word even today. You're the one that wakes us up to who you are, that brings us near as your children, and so we pray, Lord, uh, even today as we um, and hear your word, that, you're speak, that you would speak and your will would be done in us and through us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, throughout the month of December, we've been pondering why Jesus came. I think even still, it's kind of of a leftover of culture, right? Um, People are happy to accept that Jesus came. We could uh, put a nativity scene over here. We can play some Christmas songs. People are are generally happy to think Jesus came. But the, the big question is, why? Why did he come? If you're... If you're assuming this idea that the eternal Son of God, right, we're using this idea, he came. We don't speak of most people's births like that. He came, that the eternal Son of God would would do this, would go to these lengths, would take on human flesh. Why? We've been pondering that this month, and we're remembering that really no book tells us about the why of the incarnation more deeply or more thoroughly than the book of Hebrews. So we're looking again this morning, one more time, one more picture as to why Jesus came. We've been studying right through this book, and this morning we're finishing the main body of the book, uh, this main section, all proclaiming this one major message, which is this, Jesus was born to be our perfect priest. He came to be your priest. And now we should probably admit this is where some of us get lost a little bit. Uh, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes the idea of priesthood can seem kind of culturally loaded or irrelevant. So I thought it might just be important to remember just three core realities, three, three ideas from the Bible that help us see why this idea of priesthood, it's not just some uh, religious curiosity off to the side but it's essential for you to know and to have and to trust. So why is priesthood so important? Number one, this would be a foundational truth right here. We each need a priest because there is a massive gap between the holy creator God and sinful people. Massive gap between a holy creator God and sinful people. God is morally perfect, we are each responsible to him as, the, as our creator, and we have each flagrantly sinned against him in his ways and his design for us. And so there's a gap. We don't desire him or love him as we ought. He has a just and righteous anger towards us. We need a priest. Second truth, the priest comes to bridge the gap somehow, right? The priest represents God to draw the people near. The the priest represents the people to to bring them to God. The priest bridges the gap. Biblical reality, you can't fellowship with God without a priest. You've got to have one. You're you're dependent upon him. So we need a priest because of that massive gap between a holy God and sinful people We need a priest because the priest bridges the gap. Third reality, the priest bridges the gap through sacrifice. This almost just seems like common knowledge, doesn't it? What do priests do? They offer sacrifices. Why? Somehow, some debt has to be paid. Somehow, something has to be brought. Somehow, we're not enough on our own. The priest brings God and humanity together through the sacrifice. With that on our mind, then, we could ask these questions. 
How are sinful people gonna be made right with God so they can enjoy fellowship with him? How's that gonna work? Two, how are sinful people gonna have transformed hearts to where we actually know God and love him and his ways? And then third, ask this question. What kind of sacrifice could actually accomplish that? What could, what could anyone actually bring that could accomplish that? And that's what the author wants to draw our eyes to this morning. Yeah, we're, we're, we're thinking about the priest. We're thinking about how he bridges the gap. But in this text especially, we're thinking about the sacrifice. We're just, we're just going into deeper waters on the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus brought. And, and we see, why did he come? Why did he take on flesh? Why was the eternal son of God incarnated to be truly human? He came to be our perfect sacrifice. So we're gonna see three things this morning from this text. Number one, the need for a better sacrifice, the need. We need this. Number two, the heart of the better sacrifice the heart, and number three, just some of the results of that better sacrifice. So that's what I hope we'll see today. Number one, the need for a better sacrifice. Number two, the heart of the better sacrifice. And number three, the results of the better sacrifice. First, the need. You see in our text, chapter 10, one to four, the author again takes us to think about the, the sacrifices and offerings brought by the Levitical high priests into the Mosaic tabernacle and the temple. He's thinking about those again. And we just remember, it's important to remember, ever since God saved his people out of Israel, or excuse me, out of Egypt, to Israel, brought them to himself, the way to fellowship with him was through the Mosaic covenant, right? That's, that's kind of sobering to remember. For what, 1,500 years the way a human being could come and have any fellowship with the living God, the creator God, was through the Mosaic Covenant. That reminds us of several things. Number one, the Mosaic Covenant. It's good, right? Of course, of course it was good. It's, got, it's from God. It's got good statutes for loving God and neighbor, and it provided a way to be forgiven and to worship God. And for 1,500 years, that was the way to come to God. And yet, what have we been seeing throughout Hebrews? And yet, like a shadow to reality, it wasn't enough. Like a promise to the fulfillment of that promise, the Mosaic Covenant wasn't enough. In fact, the author of this book has shown us with painstaking energy that the, the Old Testament scriptures themselves show us that the Mosaic Covenant was not God's final goal. It was not the ultimate plan. In fact, the Mosaic Covenant mainly serves to show us our need. How bad do you need Jesus? Read the Old Testament and find out. Read about the nature of our sin, the distance of that gap. Read about how holy God is. Read, read his law. Consider the Ten Commandments. Look at yourself honestly. You'll see a need. But more than that, even in the practices of the Old Covenant. The author of Hebrews is showing us, the Holy Spirit is telling us in those, how the priests work, the sacrifices they offered, he's telling us in those we see our need. So let's, let's follow his thoughts after him. Look what he says in 10.1. He's gonna give us in chapter 10, verses one to four, four reasons that the Mosaic Covenant was transient. That means it was never gonna last all the way. It wasn't the ultimate plan. It's not enough. It doesn't get it done. Four ways it shows us our need. Number one, look at verse one, chapter 10, verse one. Since the law has but, what's the next word there? A shadow of the good things to come. What do you learn about a shadow? I mean, there's, there's some continuity, right? You're standing, there's the sun, there's your your shape, the shadow. Okay, I, I see it. There's some continuity. But come on, that's not the real thing. That's not the actual object. So there's a continuity, but there's a discontinuity. And, and look at what these new things are called. Since the law has but a shadow of the what? 
good things to come. Good things to come. Yeah, the Mosaic Covenant has a shadow. It's good, but oh, there's better things coming. Real things, true things. So already we see this is transient. We need a better sacrifice. Second thing to see, you see the author's thought in one to two here. The Mosaic law and its sacrifices are ineffective in its repetition. They're ineffective in its repetition. So you see the author pondering these, the perpetual nature of these things. So again, look at verse one. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of, of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Do you see what he's saying really clearly? These sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant with the Levitical priests and the tabernacle and the temple, they can never do what needs to be done in your life and your heart and your relationship with God. Why are you saying that? Well, here's his argument. Look, verse two. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? You see the logic there, right? The perpetuity of these things. We got to do it again. Next year, we got to do it again. We got to do another one. We got to do it again. It tells you, what does it tell you if it, if it has to keep happening? It, it, didn't, it didn't do it. It didn't accomplish it. It, did, it didn't finish it. And so there's a clue here the writer sees as he meditates on these things. It's not working because if it worked, we wouldn't have to keep doing it. So the Mosaic Covenant and its, and its sacrifices are transient. First, it's like a shadow to the real thing. Second, it's ineffective as we see in its repetition. It's not actually accomplishing what it's supposed to do. Now look at verse three. Here's the third reason it's transient. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Do you remember, remember one of the golden promises of the new covenant? We saw it a couple of weeks ago. We'll see it again today. How does, how does the word remember go with sins in the new covenant? I'll remember their sins no more. Do you see a difference here? With these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins. And so you'd see as you had to offer another sacrifice, as you still couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, you you would see, we're guilty, we're sinful. There's still the gap. There's still the distance. We can't totally, truly come near. It's a reminder of sin. And I think this raises a question. The author's had this in his mind throughout a large section of this book. Maybe you've thought of this question. Don't you think at some point a... uh, an Israelite with genuine faith coming to worship, bringing a sacrifice, don't you think at some point she asked, she thought, what does the death of a cow have to do with my sins? How does, how does killing an unwitting farm animal take care of my heart problem of not loving God and his ways? And so there's a clue, right? The only way as a sinner we're coming near, what has to happen? A substitutionary death. We see that. A substitutionary death has to happen for me to come near. But we also think, how does this really work? And the author says it very plainly in verse 4. Look at what he says. For it is, what's the next word? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's never going to work. It's never going to happen. So in the transience of the Mosaic Covenant, the, the shadowiness, the, the promise not yet fulfilled, it's, it's pointing, what's it telling you that you need? You need a better sacrifice. You need, you need one that can actually do and accomplish what we need to be accomplished. So where do we find the better sacrifice? And now we get into our second point the better sacrifice, the heart of the better sacrifice. And this is, what, this is one of my favorite sections in Scripture. Look at what verses 4 and 5 say together. The writer says in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
I, mean, that, I think that would have been devastating in a way to this audience, right? They're tempted to leave Jesus and go back to the Mosaic law. They're, uh, they're thinking of all their ancestry behind them, and then just to you know, drop the bomb right here, these have never taken away sins. That's not possible. But they're pointing you to how God will do it one day. And then look at the first word of verse 5. Consequently. That, that ties one argument to another one, doesn't it? The, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Consequently, because of that, now look at these next phrases. These are amazing and precious. When Christ came into the world, he said, the, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But consequently, related to this, when Christ came into the world, he said, what's on Christ's mind as he said whatever he's going to say? Something needs to happen to take away sins. Something needs to happen to take away sins. We, be, we need a better sacrifice. And then what does Christ say? Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. We need to think about this for a little bit. Uh, from, from whence is the author getting these ideas? Where, where, where's he quoting from here? This is Psalm 40. This is Psalm 40. It's just magnificent what the writer sees here. This is Psalm 40. So when Jesus comes in the world, what does Jesus say? He says, Psalm 40. Now, let's remember some of the context of Psalm 40. Because as you look in your Bibles here in your lap, verses 5 to 7, here in Hebrews 10, 10, 5 to 7, these are verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 40, okay? So let's do just a little bit of contextual remembering. What is Psalm 40 about? How is it that Jesus said Psalm 40? And what does that have to do with the better sacrifice? That's what we want to know, right? What does it have to do with the better sacrifice? So just some context. Psalm 40. Who's Psalm 40 written by? It's written by King David some 1,000 years before Jesus. That's amazing. 1,000 years before Jesus. Now, of course, Psalm 40 then is a, is a song from David's experience, right? It's a song of prayer from David, of praise to God from David regarding his own situation. But... It's also a psalm. What are, what are psalms for? Did, did somebody just steal David's journal and was like, ooh, let's print this? No. This is, a, this is a song meant for corporate worship. It's meant for all of God's people to read it, to understand it, and to put in their own heart's needs into it and to pray it themselves. So what's Psalm 40 about? David wrote it. It's for all God's people. Look at Psalm 40, verses 12 to 14. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those who be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life, let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. That's interesting. You, you see, the psalmist here is, is in despair. He's, he said he's encompassed by evils without number. Even his own sins, he says, have overtaken him. They're, they're more than the hairs of his own head. And so he's in distress. He's in distress. But look at how the psalm ends, Psalm 40, verse 16. Psalm 40, 16. But may all who seek you do what? Rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. Verse 17, I love this verse. As for me, this is who I am left to myself. As for me, I am poor and needy. I can't fix it. I, take, I can't take care of it. I can't save myself. But what a precious line. But what? The Lord takes thought for me. Isn't that great? 
Do you ever think sometimes if you were uh, strong and had it all together, the Lord would take thought for you? If I was just better at this, God would be more impressed by me. He'd take more thought of me. Oh, no, right? As for me, I'm poor and needy. I don't have much to offer, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh, my God. What a wonderful psalm. So we see God's people here are encouraged by Psalm 40. That in the middle of their distress, enemies, circumstances, even their own sins, there's a promise that God takes thought for the humble who trust in him despite the difficulties, and in fact, he delivers them. He delivers them. He delivers those who trust in him. Okay, that takes us now to the middle of the psalm, Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. The middle of the psalm. We see here what it looks like to trust God. Here's the picture of what it looks like to trust the Lord. And now you get at what the author of Hebrews wants you to see. Psalm 40, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering, you have, what's that next word? Not delighted. But you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. So we see a few things here. Number one, Psalm 40 shows us that the heart of true worship was never really about sacrificing bulls and goats. It's never the goal. It's never the heart. Instead, something else is God's delight. It's not sacrifice. It's something else is God's delight. And it says, what did it say? You have given me an open ear. This is what delights God. You've given me an open ear. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have that question. What does it mean? If you're paying close attention, you might have another question. How many of you noticed that Hebrews 10.5, quoting Psalm 46, says, a body you have prepared for me. And Psalm 46 says, you've given me an open ear. Did you notice the difference? Psalm 40, verse 6 says, you've given me an open ear. Hebrews 10, 5, supposedly quoting Psalm 46 says, a body you have prepared for me. What's going on? How are we supposed to understand the difference? Let's think about what it says in Psalm 40 first. Psalm 40 is giving you a Hebrew idiom, and to read it literally, it would, it would say something like this, an ear you have dug for me. So that's, a, that's, a, that's an idiom right there, right? That's culturally grounded. An ear you have dug for me. So the, the picture, God digs into you, plants you an ear. Okay, but, but what does it mean? What does it mean? You see from the context of the psalm what it means. The psalmist says, right in line with this, I delight to do your will, O God, your laws on my heart. So think about how this works. This, this person hears God's word, and because God has dug an ear for him, where does the word go? into his, his, his desires, into, into the way he sees the world, into how he wants to live. And so he says, I'm all yours. Take all of me. So the idiom means I listen to you and I give you my whole self. So the psalmist sees something here. What kind of sacrifice does God really delight in? The, bulls of, uh, the blood of bulls and goats? No. He wants you. He wants you. What you love. How you think. The, the better sacrifice is you with the kind of heart where you hear God's word and you give him your body, yourself, your everything. And so we see why the author of Hebrews Translate that, translates that Hebrew idiom the way he does. He's, he's, he's showing his audience exactly what this text means. You have given me an open ear means the same thing as a body you have prepared before me. I hear you and I obey. I'm all yours. All that I am is yours. But now let's just back up. So, we, so we've looked at this, the context of Psalm 40. Who is it? The writer of Hebrews says, said Psalm 40. Remember, we're back in this argument again. Um, 
It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. We need a better sacrifice. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, a body you have prepared for me. What's Jesus saying? What's the better sacrifice? How is it that Jesus is the one who said this? Think of all the people who said this. David said it first, right? King David. Um, Did he always keep that line? Uh, You've dug an open ear for me. I'm giving you all that I am. Um, I hear your law and I obey. Did David always live that out? Have you read about him? (laughs) Did, Did he always honor God with his body? Not a chance. Uh, what about the Levitical priests? Did they always honor God with their mind and their heart, their soul, everything? Did they honor, always honor God with their body? No, how about, um, how about those who would pray and read the Psalm? Did they do it? Let's make it more personal. How about you? Have, have, can you say to God, God, you've dug an open ear for me and all I want is to obey you in every way, shape, or form, no matter what? Does your heart say, Lord, even in suffering, bring it. I just want to glorify you. Take me. Your will be done, Lord. Does your heart always say that? Have you always honored God with your body? I have not. I have not. I haven't done this. And then we we remember how the whole Bible works. We remember how the Psalms work. We remember what the writer of Hebrews has been telling us. Wait, God promised to David, right, that one of his sons would reign forever, the the promised king. And he would be the one to save the people and judge evil and renew the world. And so in a way, every Psalm, even more than it's David's Psalm, it's Jesus' Psalm. Did did he experience affliction and people hating him? And did he have to cry out and trust the Father for deliverance? And did he say, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. I say Jesus is the only one who ever truly said Psalm 40. He's the only one who ever truly said Psalm 40. And think of the context in which he's saying it. There needs to be a sacrifice for the people that will actually take away their sins. And it's not the blood of bulls and goats. That can't do it. That's impossible. And then he says, I've come to do your will, O God. It is written of me in the scroll of the book. Oh, and you imagine Jesus Christ in his incarnation reading the Bible and him seeing that the sacrifice of bulls and goats won't be enough and him reading Isaiah 53 about the servant of the Lord who would take the place of the rebellious people. Him reading Psalm 40. Him, him knowing the call from the Father that says for us to save are sinful people. You'll need to give yourself up for them. And here's the heart of the sacrifice. What was Jesus' response to the call that he would give up himself for the forgiveness of his people? What was his response? I'll do it. Your will be done. Your will be done, I'll do it. I'll do it. And the the book of Hebrews is full of this, right? His willing sympathy toward you, his solidarity toward you. He will come and he'll be like his brothers and sisters in every way. He knows what it means to experience weakness and temptation. And he did it willingly for you, Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was willing. And so the, the writer just shows you again and again, he was willing, he was willing, he was willing. And that should blow you away. It should blow your heart away, your mind away. That, that Jesus knows you personally, knows what you deserve, he knows what you've done. He knows your guilt with far more clarity even than you do on your most humble and contrite day. He knows it because he's all-knowing, and he also knows because he paid for every drop of it on the cross. And in the midst of all of that, he said, I would love to. 
I will absolutely do this for them. Right, we saw in Hebrews, it says, he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's not, he's not shy or embarrassed about coming to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He's willing. He's willing. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of the gospel. And I think it's one your heart needs and my heart needs. Jesus didn't just save you. He wanted to save you. He was willing to save you. And that's what makes him the better sacrifice. That's what makes him the perfect sacrifice. His willingness. Perfectly holy and that he never, ever sinned. Why was it always a lamb without blemish? It's just one little sign saying, the one who does it will, will be perfect. Perfect in his, holy, in his holiness and his innocence. Perfect. But so much better than any bull or any goat, he was willing. That's the better sacrifice. So back in Hebrews 10, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasures in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, verse 9. This is the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus speaking Psalm 40. Then Jesus added, behold, I have come to do your will. And look at the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews. He, that's Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. What did he do with, do away with? The sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant. He did away with it. Thousands and thousands and thousands, let's say millions, bulls and goats and sheep sacrificed. And he did away with them all because they never saved anybody from their sins. And he accomplished everything all those pointed to when he gave up himself. And then in verse 10, here's the conclusion. By that will, the will of the Father sending Jesus, the willingness of Jesus to go, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And then what's that next beautiful phrase? Once for all. Just see for a moment the magnificence of Jesus' one sacrifice. How many lambs were killed on Passover the first time? The blood to mark the doors. How many did, did David sacrifice uh, and move in the ark, bringing the ark to the city? How many did, did Solomon sacrifice when he established the temple? How many for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? And then even in, in the first century, the time of Christ and the temple and, and all its operations and people coming from everywhere, how many, how many, how many sacrifices for sins? And what did they all do? Yes, that's the way you fellowship with God during that time. But here's what they did. They all said to all of us, this is how much you need Jesus. This is how much you need Jesus. And then Jesus on his cross, the willing sacrifice. If this is true, that means he paid for every conceivable, actual sin that he needed to for all of his people, past, present, and future. He did all of it. And did it on one day, once for all. That is the better sacrifice. Awe-inspiring. It's incredible. It's incredible. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified, you've been brought near, you've been made holy, you're forgiven, you're, you're transformed, you're brought near finally, once for all, through Jesus. So we've seen our need for a better sacrifice, and then we've seen, what has he told us in every, in every way possible? The better sacrifice has come. It's Jesus Christ and his willing offering of himself. Unreal. So wonderful. Let's look at the results of some of that, some of the results of that sacrifice. Start here in uh, verse 11. The author's going to make, uh, I think, three, point out three major results of Jesus' sacrifice, just in 11 to, uh, 11 to 18. We'll see the first one. 
Chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So you see a compare and contrast, don't you? Every, every priest, what's he do? Stands daily offering repeatedly the same. Do you get the idea? Busy as a bee, every day, standing, working, active. And what can they never do? Can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did Jesus do after that? He sat down. What's the difference between standing and sitting in this context? This guy, I'm standing, I'm working, I got to get it done. I didn't get it done. Jesus, one time, sit, finished. It's finished. I did it. I'm sitting. I'm sitting. That doesn't mean Jesus is inactive. No, he's reigning for our good. He's interceding for us. But as far as dealing with the sins of his people, his sacrificial work has been done with perfection. Let your heart listen to this. You want to repent and, and be in fellowship with God, and you think, I sinned against, I sinned again. Any of you do the same sin over again, even though you knew you weren't supposed to do it? And you're like, 40 years in, you're like, I'm still doing that thing. And then sometimes your heart tells you, if I could just fix myself, then I could come to Jesus and have fellowship. Can we give up on that? First of all, just look at the evidence. You can't fix yourself. Second, don't deny his sacrifice for you and what he did. He perfected. Um, he, he offered for all time a single sacrifice. That means... Yes, we should fight and hate our sin. Absolutely. We're going to talk about that. But that means that he even knows the sins you have yet to commit, and he already paid for those. Glory to his name. He sat down. He sat down. He won. He rose. So look at, look at verse 13. Jesus is waiting now until the time when his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You know, it's like, He's waiting. What's he waiting for? Well, one day he's going to return, right? And his enemies, those who deny him, he'll take care of that. He will bring justice, judgment. But look at the dichotomy here between 10, verse 13, and 9, verse 28. 10, verse 13. Jesus is waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are what? Eagerly waiting for him. What are we doing? We're waiting for Jesus. What's he doing? He's waiting for us. There's work to be done. There's more people to be saved. There's you and I to be sanctified. Hebrews 12 is going to have that all in it. God's using the difficulties of our lives to make us holy like him for our good. But Jesus is waiting. He's, he's ready. He's waiting for the Father's perfect time. He's ready and waiting to come get us. And we're waiting. We're ready for him to see his face. That just shows you the result of his sacrifice. As far as our relationship with him and the sin problem, the priests of the Mosaic Covenant, they stood, they worked, he sat because it's perfect. That's the first result. The second result you see in verse 14. Man, what a verse this is. So much richness in one verse. Verse 14, the result of Jesus' perfect sacrifice. By a single offering, he has perfected. What tense is that? It's past and it's perfect. He did it. It's not, doesn't need to do it again. It's not doing it now. He already did it. He has perfected 
What's the next phrase? For all time, what does that look to? Forever. Past tense has perfected. How long does that work last? Forever. Those who are being sanctified. What's the tense on are being sanctified? Now. 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 What a way to view your life in Christ. What a way to view your life in Christ. If you have put your faith in Christ and you've trusted him, he has perfected you. Ways to see that. Number one, justification. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were counted righteous. The perfection of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was counted to you. Even though you and yourself, not righteous, you now receive this alien righteousness as a gift, his belonging to you. You're perfected. And like Paul says at the end of Romans, Romans 8, those who he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. How can Paul talk about being glorified in the past tense? Are you glorified yet? No. <laughs> Are you serious? But it's in the past tense. Why is your glorification in the past tense? Because this is as good as done. Those he justifies, he glorifies. He, he will bring you to himself. He will finish the work. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, you have to remember right now, we, we grieve our difficulties we celebrate our joys. We have to remember God's, one, of, one of God's mission, one aspect of God's mission in your life right now. He's sanctifying you. He wants you to be like Jesus. He wants to change your character. He wants to work in and through you for the growth of his kingdom in every way. He wants to change how you think. He wants to fill you with the fruit of the spirit. He wants to fill your mouth. He wants, to, he wants to adapt the way you relate to other people. He wants to use you in this world somehow in some way. He is sanctifying you. Is he done yet? No. It, it, does this happen all at once? No. Are there ups and downs in it? Yes. But this is what he's doing. And this is a result of his perfect work on the cross. Because he has perfected you for all time, you can be sanctified now. He's working that in you now. So he sat down. He saved us perfectly. Third thing to see that he accomplished on the cross, and this is just a repeat for the writer of Hebrews. He bought the new covenant and its inheritance. But he says it again. Look at chapter 10, verses 15 to 17. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Wonderful things here. Our view of scripture, right? Jeremiah wrote about the new covenant. The writer of Hebrews says, that's the Holy Spirit talking. When you interpret the Bible rightly, even from ages past, that's God talking today. And there's a new covenant. And of course, the beauty of the new covenant, we've looked at this before, you're gonna know God in a new way. Every believer, every one of his people, you're gonna know God relationally, intimately. He's gonna bring you as a child to a father. You're gonna know him. He's gonna put his law on your heart. Psalm 40 is gonna start to come true in you. Just like Jesus, you're gonna say, give me that open ear to where you hear God's word and you want it to change what you love, how you think, and how you live. It's a promise of the new covenant. You're gonna love God and his ways. You're gonna grow in that. That's what that means to be sanctified. But finally, for the author's point here, because he's talking about the better sacrifice, verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And look at how, look at how that connects with verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. We're done. The perfect sacrifice has come. And you're forgiven. You know, there's a, somewhere in the Psalms that says, there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. 
Sometimes it seems backward, right? It's like, uh, if I would just fear God, then I could be forgiven. No, it's, in a way, it's, he forgives you so that you can fear him. It's, it's God forgiving you that brings you near so that you can enjoy his presence and learn of him and love him and fear him. So what I'm saying to you is you need to glorify God in your heart by treasuring and receiving the complete and ultimate forgiveness that Jesus has already won for you. Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, I know I'm forgiven, I just have a hard time forgiving myself? Maybe you felt that way. I just have a hard time forgiving myself. What's, what's the grain of truth in there that your heart's telling you? I was rotten, right? And I messed it up, and I deserve some pe- sort of penalty for that. Okay, and as far as that goes, that's true. You've, you've confessed it. Okay, that's right. That's right. Maybe there's something you need to do. Maybe you need to apologize. Maybe you need to restore something. Maybe you need to repent. Okay, that's right. But let's dig deeper. I know God forgives me, but I just don't know if I can forgive myself. Oh, you fool. Who is the just and holy judge of the universe? Do you think ultimately your own voice on your forgiveness really matters that much? You're not the judge. When God says, I have forgiven you, he is not just having an emotion, like a, a happy emotional day. I feel like forgiving today. And then tomorrow, maybe not. No, no. Because the ground of his forgiving you is the willing sacrifice of his son on the cross where the son took in full justice every drop of wrath that you deserve. That is the only way this works. Which means that if you're in Christ, you have no idea how totally forgiven you are and will ever be. It's the only way this works. So yes, when, you, when you're convicted of sin, confess your sin, come to God to restore that fellowship and that relationship. But don't for a moment think it needs to be atoned for. Glorify the work of the Son. Glorify the verdict of the Father because when he says you're forgiven, you are. You are because of Jesus' better sacrifice. So what should we do with this? Just two small points in conclusion. Number one, I mean, where else are you going to get forgiveness? Where else are you going to go to be forgiven? Where else are you going to go to be right with God? There, there is nowhere else. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, did he mean that? He meant that in part because only his perfect sacrifice can ever do that for anyone. So trust Christ. Trust Christ. If you're not a Christian, trust Christ. He will bring you near to God. Trust yourself to Jesus. We also think of the audience of this letter, right? They're tempted to go back to the Mosaic Covenant so as to escape probably marginalization and persecution. We can go back to the temple. Levitical priests can do their things. We'll still have God. We'll still have the scriptures. And we won't be kicked out by our society or made fun of or mistreated. And the author of Hebrews says, you're going to leave the better sacrifice for those shadows and those copies which can never pay for your sins. What this means for us is it's an encouragement. Hey, hold fast to your confession of Christ. Don't ever leave. Don't ever leave. Pack your heart and all its hopes on Christ as your priest, as your king, as your treasure. Don't ever leave. Hang on, no matter the cost. No matter what it costs, you stay home. You stay right here. You stay with Jesus. Trust Christ. Hold fast to your confession. Third thing. Don't you love how Jesus always goes first? The new covenant is that God will write his law in our hearts and we will love God in his ways and want to follow him. Who did that first? Jesus did it first. And so he says, a body you have prepared for me. And Jesus says, I give you my very body 
in order to save this people. Now, you and I, we don't need to give God our bodies to pay for the sins of anyone else. Please don't do that. It won't work. That would be ridiculous. But does God want your body? Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, what should you do? Present your body as a living sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul's thinking about sexuality, sexual practice. 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you were bought with a price. So what should you do? Glorify God. Where? In your body. And if you know Christ, that's what you'll want to do because you follow his lead. He gave himself up for us in gratitude towards that. Filled with the same spirit of that, we want to give ourselves to him. Let's do that this next year in new ways. Let's glorify this perfect sacrifice of our Savior and live in light of it. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. There's nobody like you. There's no sacrifice like yours. There's no promises like yours. And we are in awe that you would willingly come and be this and do this for us. What a savior you are. Help us to give you the glory you deserve uh, in what you've done for us on the cross and believe your message and trust you and, and just rejoice in the forgiveness that we have through what you've done, the promise of your perfection in our lives. Lord, let us lean into the sanctification that you have for us because you're our priest and you're the better sacrifice. We thank you for coming to do this and be this for us. Um, may your work have the effect it's meant to have in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.